Everybody hear me all right? If you have your Bibles, please open them and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. I want to begin by reading the text, and then we'll pray and ask God to bless our time. So, hear these words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light Momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Please pray with me. Father, I am woefully ill-equipped to stand up here and preach your word this morning. Powerful as it is, remarkable as it is. But Father, as this passage reveals to us, you have chosen to use weak and frail and broken vessels to display your magnificent glory and your awesome power. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, that you would encourage us, even as we face various trials and afflictions, with the knowledge and the hope of the resurrection and the glory that is to come. In Jesus' name, amen. The main theme of 2 Corinthians has been identified by many people as 
summarized in the phrase power through weakness, or some will say strength through weakness. And that's a fairly counterintuitive sort of concept, isn't it? It was for the readers in Paul's day, and it is for us today. I think of phrases that I've heard, um, things, uh, slogans like, pain is weakness leaving the body. And, of course, the context in which that was used was weightlifting or exercise or things like that, because, of course, that's not true all the time, right? Pain is not always weakness leaving the body. Sometimes pain is more weakness entering the body. But this is the, 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 the way that we approach this. You can't be strong when you're weak, right? If you're weak, then you need to, you need to work on it. You need to, you need to power up. You need to, to, to strengthen yourself. You need to exercise. You need to push through the pain and the weakness and overcome it to become strong. Paul lists all kinds of hardships and trials and sufferings and things that he faces throughout the letter of 2 Corinthians. From the very beginning, in chapter 1, he opens on this note of affliction, talking about all the affliction that they face. He talks about the affliction that they faced in Asia, where they were so utterly burdened beyond their strength that they despaired of life itself. In our own passage, Paul lists out some of these hardships and sufferings. And then later in the book... Paul is going to mention all kinds of hardships and trials that he has faced in his mission for the gospel. He talks about imprisonments, beatings, being shipwrecked, daily pressure of anxiety for all the churches, and many, and many, many, many other things. And of course, this is the book in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul mentions his thorn in the flesh that was given to him this messenger from Satan to harass Paul, perhaps some sort of physical ailment. And Paul was not the only one to mention hardships and trials and things that he had undergone. Actually, there were other philosophers of the day, cynics and stoics and things like that, who would also refer to hardships and and sufferings and trials. But they would do it in a different way than the way that Paul does it. They would refer to... They would refer to hardships and afflictions as almost something like a, like a flex, to show off uh, how, how great they were, that they had overcome them. They would list these hardships to downplay them, to show how little they actually affected them, to demonstrate how they had overcome them through their own grit and might. And this is perhaps more similar to, to the concept of what I mentioned a moment ago, this idea of pain is weakness leaving the body. We need to overcome, we need to push through these things. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul is doing something different. And this is not how Paul views his own weaknesses, his own hardships, his own trials that he mentions throughout the letter. In 2 Corinthians, you don't grit your teeth, push through the pain, and will yourself to greater strength. Paul certainly does not downplay the weakness and the suffering that he endures. On the contrary, he gives it its full due. It's nothing less than grueling, painful affliction. And Paul does not list out hardships like his stoic or cynic peers to demonstrate how he used his will to overcome them in order that he might bring glory and honor to his name. Instead, Paul says things like what we read in our passage this morning. We who live are always being given over to death 
for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He acknowledges that we are dying, that we're constantly being afflicted, beaten down, persecuted, driven to despair, and yet they bear up under these afflictions, not by their own power and might, but by the power of God. And in doing so, they demonstrate the glory and the greatness of Christ and of His gospel. And so this theme of power or strength through weakness runs throughout the letter. And I think it's at the heart of what Paul is saying in our passage this morning. So in our passage this morning, we're going to see Paul unpack this very idea of how our affliction brings glory to God and serves as a means to proclaim His gospel to those around us. Now, this is a really meaty text. This is a really uh, thick, theologically, uh, text. And so, for the sake of time, and I know that, that we all want to go to the picnic at some point today, um, we're not going to be able to explore every nook and cranny of this passage, so there may be something that, that you, you may think, if I skip over it, you may think, hey, wait a minute, that was something that you should have talked about. Um, and uh, it, it's probable that I'm aware of it, and I just cut it out so that we could focus on the main things uh, and, and not be here for four hours. But I think that Paul is doing at least three things in this passage, and this is the way that I've divided our discussion of the text, essentially by the paragraph divisions that I have, at least in my Bible, in the ESV translation. So Paul is saying at least three things in this passage. So in verses 7 to 12, he's showing us that our afflictions are not pointless, but are in fact a means of displaying the glory of the gospel of Christ in our bodies so that others may come to Christ. Secondly, in verses 13 to 15, he elaborates on on what it is that motivates us to proclaim the gospel of Christ even though we will suffer pain and affliction. That is, specifically, the resurrection and the hope of final deliverance in our own resurrection. And then finally, in verses 16 to 18, he details what is actually taking place in our suffering in service to Christ and what we have to look forward to as our inner self is being daily renewed. So, let's get into it. Beginning in verse 7, Paul opens on this section dealing with how our affliction serves as a means of displaying the glory of Christ. This is in verses 7 to 12. Paul begins in verse 7. I'll read it again. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Already we have to pause right here and address a couple of things before we can move forward. Obviously we're dropping down into the middle of an ongoing discussion and ongoing argument here in 2 Corinthians as is evident by the fact that this verse begins with the word but. Additionally, we wonder, what is this treasure that he's referring to when he says we have this treasure in jars of clay? What is he talking about there? Well, I think to answer that question, the, the second question about what, what is this treasure that we have, we, we need to look back to the, the, the previous verses and the previous sections and talk a little bit about what Paul says there. So, beginning with just one verse back in chapter 4, verse 6, 
Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so this treasure that he refers to in verse 7 is this gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Okay, great, so it's the gospel. But what exactly is, is he getting at there with this language of the glory of God in the face of Christ? And I think to answer this, again, we need to consider a little bit the, the preceding chapter. Now, this is not a sermon on 2 Corinthians 3. There's a lot of stuff to unpack there as well, but just a few things to consider. Beginning with this concept of glory. So I said that it's the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The word glory, in Greek the word is doxa, for those of you who are interested in such things. The word glory is used 19 times in 2 Corinthians. 19 times. Of those 19 occurrences, 15 of them appear in chapters 3 and 4. So full over 75% of the occurrences of this term in chapters 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians. So these are some glorious chapters, you might say. The term glory generally carries with it this idea of weight, heaviness. It can be associated with abundance, with wealth, with splendor. And it's preeminently associated with God. God is the one who is glorious. He is seen to be... just The glory of the Lord is, is referred to often in the Old Testament, frequently with reference to His visible and His active presence among His people. Sometimes it's even represented as light or fire. So think about like the pillar of fire that accompanied the Israelites in the wilderness. God's glory is also reflected in creation. And in humanity is said to reflect God's glory, bearing His image. But because of sin, because of the fall, that glory is defaced. It is obscured. But, as we'll see in Christ, it is restored. And it's particularly worth considering one scene from the Old Testament having to do, relating to this concept of glory, and that is Exodus 33 and 34. Now, we won't turn there, just for the sake of time, but just to remind you what's going on in Exodus 33 and 34, this is the scene where Moses asks God to show him his glory. He says, show me your glory, right? And it's interesting because at this time, Moses is said to meet, he meets with God in the tent of meeting, and he's said to speak to God face to face as one speaks to a friend, is the, is the imagery that is used, this, this language of face to face. But when Moses asks God to show him his glory, the Lord says that he will, uh, he will reveal his glory, uh, but no one can see his face and live. No one can see the face of the Lord and live. And so in order to preserve Moses' life, the Lord says that he will pass in front of Moses and he will put his hand over Moses and Moses will see not his face, but his back so that he doesn't die. All the same, when Moses sees the Lord's glory in this way, he, he shines, he's radiant. His face just shines like the sun, right? And so he has to put on a veil when he's around the other Israelites. He would take the veil off when he would go into the tent of meeting to meet with the Lord, but then he would have to put it back on. And 
the reason why I go back to Exodus 33 and 34 and summarize that story and what's going on there is because that's what Paul does in the previous chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In that chapter, he talks about that former glory of the old covenant, and he compares it with the glory of the new covenant, the new covenant gospel message with which he has been entrusted, which he says is superior to that former glory. So just to, to look at a couple places in chapter 3, again, I'm not, this is on 4, 7 to 18, I promise, I'm not going to preach on chapter 3, but just to look at a couple places. In chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So again, specifically making reference to the scene of Moses' veiled face. That was so glorious that Moses had to veil his face. And this is even more glorious, this gospel that we are proclaiming. And what's even more, he returns to the veil a few verses later. In verse, uh, so he goes on in, in 12 to 14 and talks about how even uh, to this day, when, the, when, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. But in Christ, the veil is removed. The veil is taken away. He says in verse 15, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses has read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. He says in verse 18, the last verse of that chapter, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And I think that thinking about that helps us to understand what Paul is saying in chapter 4, verse 6. When he says, For God who said, Let light shine of darkness, out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember, no one could look at God's face and live. So there had to be this, 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 this veiling, this shielding. But now, in the person of Christ, that glory that has been obscured by the fall and defaced has been restored in Christ in the face of Jesus Christ. So now beholding the face of Christ, we see the glory of God in its fullness, and it is renewing our glory. Okay, so that is what Paul is getting at. That's, that's the entire sort of mass of ideas, I think, that Paul is getting at when he talks about this treasure, this light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So why does he communicate it in the way that he does in verse 7? to say that we have this treasure in jars of clay. What is he getting at there? What's the significance of that image? Well, jars of clay was not just a 90s Christian band, but was in fact, is in fact a reference to something else, believe it or not. Um, jars of clay were fragile and they were relatively cheap. So uh, in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, if a, an earthen vessel, a jar of clay, 
was defiled in some way, then the priests were just told to, to break it, just shatter that, that vessel. But if it was a vessel of wood or, or bronze that got defiled, it needed to be purified or cleansed in some way. And this is one way that kind of illustrates uh, the, the fragility of the jars, that they could just be broken easily in this way, as well as the relative uh, inexpensiveness of these jars, that it was better to just, just toss them rather than worry about uh, uh, trying to purify them like these other more precious uh, vessels. And so the emphasis, I think, is upon the frailty of the vessel and its rather unremarkable nature. And so the emphasis is upon the fact that the ministry of this glorious gospel is entrusted to frail and unremarkable vessels. Why? Well, he tells us, in order that there be no mistaking who the power belongs to. God uses these weak and frail vessels who have really no power of their own to demonstrate His own power and glory. And so we might wonder why Paul would feel compelled to say this, and this gives us another opportunity to consider the context. I talked earlier about uh, the, the various philosophers, the cynics and the Stoics, that would list out hardships and talk about how they would overcome them and and boast in these things. Well, in 2 Corinthians itself, Paul has specific opponents that he is facing. He he really goes after them later in the letter, and later in the letter he will refer to them as, quote, super apostles. And obviously that's an ironic term. We assume that they didn't refer to themselves as super apostles, although they might have. But apparently, from what we can tell from 2 Corinthians, these super apostles, they set themselves above Paul. They boasted in their apostleship. They boasted in their impressive physical appearance. They seem to have degraded Paul and his own physical appearance. It wasn't that impressive. They boasted in their rhetorical skill and in their speech, even though in, in these days it was not uncommon for there to be traveling orators who were really, really skilled in the, in the art of rhetoric, but they didn't have to really be saying much of, subs, much of anything of substance at all. Now, I know that's really hard for us to imagine, someone gaining a large following and lots of power and influence, but having absolutely nothing to say, even though they say it in a really winsome and charismatic manner. I know that that's really hard for us to imagine. But nonetheless, this was the reality. And it seems to be part of what these super apostles were engaging in. And they also went after Paul because Paul didn't accept payment for what he did for his ministry among the Corinthians. And why did they do all of these things? To demonstrate their own power and to receive glory from those who marveled at them, to to demonstrate how great they were in all of these things. But again, Paul is just the opposite. For him, boasting is only acceptable if one is boasting in the cross of Christ. Paul addresses the issue of not accepting payment. He says he doesn't accept payment because he doesn't want to place undue burden on the churches to which he ministers. He doesn't want that to be a hindrance. Whether or not Paul was truly not as gifted in the art of rhetoric as his opponents claimed, he seems pretty gifted by his letters. Paul emphasizes that it's the substance of the message that is much more important than the ornamentation of the message or how winsome or charismatic you may be in delivering it. So they boast in their own power, their own strength, their own might, but Paul emphasizes his weakness, his frailty, his suffering, so that the power 
of the gospel of Christ and the power of God at work in him may be the central focus, not any accomplishment or particular gifting that Paul may have. So, that's chapter 4, verse 7. And Paul will go on in verses 8 to 11 to explain what it looks like to display the glory of the gospel in our mortal bodies. And essentially what he does, what he starts to do here, and he does this throughout the rest of our passage really, is he looks to to Christ. He looks to the example of Christ, to what Christ endured. He talks in verses 10 through 11 about carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So to know what it looks like to display the glory of the gospel in our mortal bodies, we look to the cross. We look to the life of Christ. Christ's sufferings and afflictions and death were perfect demonstrations of the power and glory of God the Father who was giving His beloved Son as an atoning sacrifice for His chosen people. And in the same way, the sufferings of Christ's followers in their service of the kingdom likewise shares in that suffering of Christ's death and and displays His death in their bodies and thereby displaying the surpassing power and glory of God and pointing people to Christ. Paul uses four contrasts in verses 8 to 9 of chapter 4. And for the sake of time, we're not going to go through each one of these, although they're, they're all worth uh, digging into. The list that he gives covers the full extent of all the different types of affliction that one might face. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Notice the pattern we have there. We are something, but not this other thing. We are afflicted, but not crushed. Afflicted in every way, but not ultimately crushed. Perplexed, but not ultimately driven to despair. Persecuted, but not ultimately forsaken. Struck down, but not ultimately destroyed. And I think the point here that Paul is emphasizing with this pattern that he has established is that while someone may look on the outside at the afflictions and the beatings and the persecutions that Paul and his co-workers endure and think, that they surely must be utterly crushed, completely overwhelmed with despair, and totally destroyed. Paul says, no. They are most certainly suffering. That is certainly true. They are suffering in very real, very intense ways. But by God's grace and power at work in them, the suffering never runs its full course. No matter how grim the situation may become, it never reaches the point where Paul succumbs to ultimate defeat and despair. Paul was actually literally stoned in Lystra in Acts 14, I believe, left for dead outside the city. And then he got up and continued ministering. That is carrying the death of Christ and manifesting the life of Christ simultaneously. And so Paul's quote-unquote hardship catalog here, as one commentator describes it, doesn't demonstrate Paul's virtuous character or his self-sufficiency or his steadfast courage amid, amid adversity, but rather his utter dependence as a frail human being on the superlative excellence of God's power. And so, this is what Paul 
again, is showing us when he talks about what he does in verses 10 to 11, this image of bearing the death of Christ in our bodies and manifesting the life of Christ simultaneously in the same broken body. The very purpose of believers identifying with Jesus in his sufferings is to provide the opportunity to display Jesus's risen life. In fact, in verse 11, verse 10, he talks about, he uses the term for body. In verse 11, he shifts over and uses the term flesh. He talks about our mortal flesh. And it may be that in using that term specifically, he's emphasizing the transitory, the creaturely weak nature of our body that is also paradoxically the very place where Jesus' risen life is on display. And then in verse 12, he emphasizes that our afflictions are not meaningless, but they actually have an outward evangelistic purpose. They are for the benefit of others. He says in verse 12, So death is at work in us, but life in you. So it has a specific purpose, specifically focused on those outside who see the death and the life born in our bodies. So one point of application here from this section. Don't view your afflictions as a crushing defeat, a crippling setback. View them instead as the death of Christ at work in you to display the life of Christ to those around you. Now, what does that look like? Well, Paul gives this laundry list of all types of afflictions that might face us. He includes things that particularly have to do with us uh, being faithful in the proclamation of the gospel and taking the gospel to, to the world. But he also seems to include things that just come about by virtue of, of, being, of inhabiting a broken body that is, that is failing us daily. He talks about the thorn in the flesh that is given to him. This seems to be some kind of physical ailment that he is wrestling with. So it could be any number of things, a debilitating illness, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, strain in your marriage, stresses associated with raising kids. Any one of these could be enough to make it feel like the walls are closing in, like the pressure is pushing down as hard as it possibly could to the point of destroying us. But the gospel holds out hope for the Christian rooted in the word of God who believes the gospel. We can say, even in the midst of terrible suffering, of unspeakable tragedy, blessed be the name of the Lord. We can lean into the grace of the Lord and thereby display the glory of the gospel of Christ for everyone to see. Now, again, I want to emphasize this is not to downplay or to diminish that suffering. Paul is not interested in that. There might be times when it really does feel like the walls are closing in and everything's falling apart, the lights are going out. You're certain that the affliction is going to kill you and all you can do is just hang on, just cry out to the Lord faintly. Paul himself, earlier in 2 Corinthians, talks about the affliction that they faced in Asia and they were brought to the point of utter despair. They thought they'd received the death sentence. They despaired of even life itself. And that despair that he refers to there is the same term that he uses in verse 8, the second half of the verse, where he says we are perplexed, but not driven to despair. That's the same term that he uses. And some have, have hypothesized that maybe Paul did actually feel like he was at that point of utter and complete despair in that moment. But then they were delivered 
and they rejoiced in God who who raised Christ from the dead. And so now he declares that even when we are utterly perplexed, we're utterly surrounded, it looks like we are certainly going to be killed. We do not despair. We do not give in to ultimate despair. And this is because we rely on someone far greater than ourselves. We have a hope that outlasts our mortal life. And again, this is how the life of Jesus is shown in our bodies of death. We are not brought to utter despair. We are not completely ruined because we know that in the same way that Jesus returned to life after death, we too have a life that endures untouched by the decay of this fallen realm. And this is exactly where Paul goes in the next section, in verses 13 to 15, in the next three verses. He expands upon this concept. So he has explained how our afflictions are a means of displaying the glory of Christ in our bodies. And now in verses 13 to 15, he unpacks further this notion of the life of Christ that he's been referencing. And he does so to explain why in the world anyone would ever be motivated to proclaim the gospel of Christ even in the midst of this suffering. And the motivation is the assurance of final deliverance from our suffering given to us in the resurrection. He begins in verse 13 with the example of the psalmist. So we read from a psalm earlier. Paul quotes from another psalm. From Psalm 116, verse 10 specifically. And so Paul, in verse 413, he says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. So Paul recalls the word of the psalmist in Psalm 116 and draws a connection between the psalmist's experience and his own. Now, uh, I was going to turn back and read the entire psalm, but for the sake of time, I will just summarize what is going on. Because the entire context of the psalm is worth bearing in mind. Because usually when a New Testament author quotes from or alludes to an Old Testament verse, they typically have the larger context of that verse in mind as well. And so in Psalm 116 we find the psalmist facing some kind of affliction. It's not entirely clear exactly what that affliction is, but apparently this affliction threatened his life. In Psalm 116, verse 3, he says that the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. But even in the midst of this affliction, the psalmist keeps his faith in God who he says is righteous and merciful and faithful to his chosen people. In the midst of this danger, because of his belief that he has in this God, he speaks. That's what he says in verse 10, what Paul quotes. Trusting in the Lord's deliverance, and then he participates at the end in the sacrifice of thanksgiving in the presence of all God's people. Now, If you were to go back and read Psalm 116, verse 10, if you're using the the ESV translation and and many other uh, modern translations, um, the way that it's rendered in Psalm 116, verse 10, is different from the way that Paul quotes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So in the ESV, in Psalm 116, verse 10, it says, I believed even when I spoke. 
Whereas Paul says, I believed and so I spoke. And so the, the explanation for this is that it's, it's the most likely explanation is that Paul is using the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because in the Septuagint, it's much more explicitly, I believe, therefore I spoke. So that seems to be what Paul might be doing. Paul often likes to refer to the Septuagint when he refers to the Old Testament, as do many other New Testament authors. But the Hebrew itself could also be rendered in this way as well. But whatever the case may be to account for this difference, it's clear the reason that Paul is using it. And the context of affliction is still quite profoundly evidenced in Psalm 116. So it makes sense why Paul would draw upon this psalm. Paul is highlighting, in, draw, in connecting his situation to the psalmist, he's highlighting how this life of suffering and affliction is something that's really always been characteristic of the people of God. And in the same way that the psalmist, the people of God in the past, persevered because of their faith in God, so also Paul here says, we believe and so we also speak. The psalmist's cry for deliverance in Psalm 116 was informed by his belief in God as gracious, righteous, and merciful. Certainly this would have been something that the psalmist would have learned by his familiarity with the Scriptures, which would have revealed the Lord to be faithful and long-suffering toward His covenant people. The psalmist would have known how the Lord had delivered His people in the past. He certainly would have known the story of the Exodus and how God delivered His people from slavery in Egypt. And that was the basis for his belief and his crying out to the Lord for deliverance and trusting that the Lord would likewise deliver him. And Paul here has a similar line of reasoning. He ties his hope particularly to the resurrection of Christ. Verse 14, he says, so at the end of verse 13, we believe, so we also speak. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So why would anyone speak in this way that Paul says? Why would anyone want to risk putting themselves through the kinds of trials and sufferings with often little to no temporal reward, with a lot of times only further enmity with the world, greater hostility towards you from the enemies of Christ? Why in the world would you want to put yourself through something like that? Paul's answer, because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And furthermore, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, you too, if you are in Christ, will likewise be raised from the dead. You see, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Without the resurrection of Jesus, this is the, this is the core. Without the resurrection of Jesus, none of what Paul is saying in this passage works. If Jesus is not raised from the dead you are still dead in your sins and transgressions. Go back and read 1 Corinthians 15. Paul goes, to, goes through this at great length. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, you can carry in your body death, the death of Jesus all you want, but there is no life to be manifested. If Jesus were not raised from the dead, then back in verses 8 and 9, with those contrasts, there is no but not. Without the resurrection, Paul would have had to say, we are afflicted in every way 
and crushed. We are perplexed and driven to despair. We are persecuted and forsaken, struck down and destroyed. It's the resurrection that enables him to say, but not for these contrasts. It's the resurrection that keeps us from being completely and totally overwhelmed by our afflictions. Without the resurrection, it's not just that your mortal body is decaying and failing you and breaking down, but that's the end of the story. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, you may as well go the way of the super apostles. You may as well, may as well try to build up your own power and, and, and influence and glory. Because if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then what Paul is saying here makes no sense. But, praise the Lord, God did raise Jesus from the dead. And because He raised Jesus from the dead, we know that the decay of our bodies, the persecution brought upon us, the tragedies we face in life are not the end of the story. Because the Lord raised Jesus from the dead, we also will be raised. And here's the thing. If we believe this, if we really believe this, then we must speak. In verse 15, Paul gives the purpose of all of this. Why speak? Again, it's outward focused on others. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The purpose is to reach more and more people for the glory of God. Now, maybe it seems a little out of blue, out of the blue, this language of increased thanksgiving. Where is Paul coming from with that? But I think, again, he may still have the context of Psalm 116 in mind. Because if you go back and look at Psalm 116, the psalmist talks about following his deliverance. He talks about offering to the Lord the sacrifice of thanksgiving in the presence of all the Lord's people. So this is what Paul is thinking here. Like the psalmist, he believes so firmly in who God is and what he has done and what he says he will do that he speaks out boldly and plainly the gospel of the glory of Christ in the hopes that more and more may experience the grace and life and hope offered through Christ and that more and more people may participate in this sacrifice of thanksgiving to the glory of God. And by the way, notice again, whose glory? The glory of God. It's not by Paul's power. It's not for Paul's glory. But it's entirely by God's power working through this weak and broken vessel for God's glory. So if we believe, if we truly believe, then we must speak. This is really challenging. If you're like me, you're often quite hesitant to just come right out with the gospel to someone who you don't know or someone that, that, that you barely know. Admittedly, sometimes I have a tough time coming right out with people I don't know about anything. But it can be particularly challenging to be open and forthright with the message of the gospel to folks. And if we're, if we're... We can come up with all sorts of excuses and rationalizations, right? It's really personal. I don't want to offend. I don't want to say the wrong thing. 
I don't know enough. What if they ask me a hard question and I don't, I don't have a good answer? But if we're taking what Paul says here seriously, then we have to come to terms with the fact that what this all really comes down to is asking ourselves, do you really believe it? Do you really believe it? And if we really believe that the gospel is true, if we really believe that Jesus has risen from the dead and that those who believe in Him will not die in their sins but have eternal life and will be raised up with Him on the last day, then how can we be silent about this? We fear the uncomfortableness that might result if we speak. We fear the ridicule. We fear persecution. We fear what we might lose. Fear we might lose friends or might make Thanksgiving dinner awkward. But if we believe this, then we must speak. Okay. So the final section, verses 16 to 18. Paul says, In light of everything that I've been saying, particularly in light of the resurrection of Jesus and the hope of our future resurrection. We do not lose heart. In light of all that's been said up to this point, we do not lose heart. Although our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So in this verse, Paul talks about resting assured of our hope even when outward circumstances seem to call that hope into question. So it's not just that we manifest the life of Christ by bearing in our bodies the death of Christ. But here Paul is telling us that there is actually something taking place which differs from what may be seen by the naked mortal eye. On the outside, it looks like we're dying even though we have an incredible eternal hope. Our suffering and affliction is actually working to bring about our glory. Things look one way in worldly terms, but quite different in spiritual terms. Now, it's important to emphasize that when Paul introduces this contrast between the outer self and the inner self, this is not some kind of dualistic uh, Gnosticism or something like that where we have this immaterial... uh, uh, spiritual self that is entrapped in this spiritual physical prison and one day this physical prison will give way and our immaterial self will live eternally in this immaterial uh, realm. That's not what Paul's getting at. It can't be because he just got done talking about the importance of the resurrection. And if we were going to continue reading into into chapter 5, just the next few verses, Paul lays out for us that this is a physical thing, this resurrection. It is bodily. Again, go read 1 Corinthians 15. I think that's the third time I've referenced it, I think. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes into this at length. This is a physical reality, the resurrection. So we have hope for a future glorified body, a body like that of Christ. And so Paul is not talking in terms of this dualistic physical, uh, uh, dualistic Gnosticism. But rather, what he seems to have in mind is the new creation reality. 
This, this, a new era has dawned in Christ. And those in Christ, even though we continue to exist in this fallen and broken world and our bodies are failing us and dying and we can be killed by those who hate us and hate Christ, we are already participating in the eternal life that will be ours fully, in full measure, at the resurrection of the last day. It's, when he talks about the, the outer self that's wasting away, it's more than just the physical body that's involved in this wasting away of the outer self. Think about the kinds of things that he's mentioned, the hardships, the struggles, the, the toil. He doesn't mention just being beaten and being imprisoned and things like that later in 2 Corinthians. He also mentions being perplexed, being driven to despair, in 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about having daily concern for all of the churches. These are not just things involving the physical aspect, but also the mind and the spirit. So it's not just the, fl- the, the flesh. So the outer man, we might say, is the whole person from the perspective of our creaturely mortality from the temporal mortality. The inner person, however, is the new creation. The inner person is also the whole person, but as a new creation. So this is what Paul is getting at. And he's emphasizing that things aren't what they look like to the physical, naked, mortal eye. Brett's going to start a a series in Revelation next week, and I'm really excited about that. Um, and obviously, Revelation is an apocalyptic text, right? And bear with me for a moment. People make fun of me because, I, like, like Brett, uh, Brett wrote his dissertation in the book of Revelation, and, and, and I'm writing my dissertation in the book of Revelation, so I spend a lot of time thinking about it. And So I have friends who make fun of me that say, every time we talk about anything, you always bring it back to the book of Revelation. And I know... I know that I do that, but just bear with me. Humor me for a moment. Revelation is referred to as an apocalyptic text. One of the markers of an apocalyptic text, of this apocalyptic theology, is the, the peeling back of the veil, so to speak, the, the, the pulling back of, 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 of the curtain to reveal things as they actually are from a heavenly perspective. So think about in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation... If you just look at things from an earthly, horizontal perspective, it certainly looks like Satan and his beasts and his minions are winning. They are killing God's people, and they seem quite successful at that. But John is invited up into the heavenly throne room where he gets a heavenly perspective, and he sees things as they actually are. And in matter of fact, not only is Satan not winning in killing God's people, he is losing and contributing to his own destruction because the people who are followers of Christ who are killed are victorious through their death because of the resurrection of life, because of the resurrection of Christ. And this same idea we can see elsewhere in the New Testament, this this notion that things look a certain way if we just look at it here. But if we take a heavenly, eternal perspective... It's actually something quite different that's happening. Namely, in this case, 
Our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. So you're welcome for that plug for the Revelation series. Okay, verse 17. This is perhaps the most beloved verse of this entire passage. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So it's not just that our afflictions do not ultimately crush us, do not ultimately cause us to, to be utterly defeated, It's not just that our afflictions work through us so that others might see the life of Christ and come to share in that life. But our afflictions actually are preparing a great and glorious reward for us. There's a a causal relationship that Paul spells out here. He says that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And there are different ways that people have tried to explain this causal connection Some will draw a connection to uh, the Jewish belief in that the Messianic age would be ushered in by a a definite predetermined amount of affliction that God's people would have to experience, the Messianic birth pangs, things like that. And there could be something like that going on. Or it could be similar to what we find expressed in Romans 8, 17 to 18, which, by the way, there's a lot of parallels in, in Romans 8 to what we're looking at this morning the description of God's gracious blessing of believers who suffer for His Son's sake. So in Romans 8, 17 to 18, it says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Our afflictions are actually preparing a great and glorious reward for us in the same way that Jesus suffered, died, rose from the dead, and was glorified the same way that we identify, participate in the sufferings and the death of Christ. We, too, experience eternal life now. We will be raised with Christ, and we, too, will experience this glory, the glory that was lost I talked earlier about how how humans uh, would reflect the glory of the Lord in creation, but that was defaced, that was obscured, but it's restored in Christ. Through belief in Christ, through resurrection, that glory is restored. Now this glory, these rewards, if you will, are very different from what Paul's opponents might have thought in terms of the rewards for their behavior and activity. So I've already mentioned a couple times how you would have the super apostles and others who would try to build up their own uh, uh, presence, their own skill, and, and boast their own power and influence for their own glory. Whereas Paul talks about God's glory being demonstrated in his suffering. Well, it turns out it's not that there's no glory, but this glory is yet unseen, and it's very different from what his opponents sought. This glory comes about not by overcoming our afflictions, by grit, 
but by remaining faithful to the gospel call even in the midst of those afflictions. This glory is bestowed upon us by the only glorious one. It's not something that we build up for ourselves. The only glorious one is the one who bestows this glory upon us. And it's not a glory that fades, ebbs, or flows, but is an an eternal, enduring, everlasting glory. Notice the contrast that Paul sets up for us in 4.17. Light versus weighty. Momentary versus eternal. Affliction versus glory. And then at the end, even though he's been giving this comparison, he says this is beyond all comparison. This glory is beyond all comparison with our afflictions. How glorious must it be that it would make all of the afflictions and tribulations we face in this life pale in comparison? How glorious must it be? And then in verse 18, he shows us that you can't see this glory. It is at present largely unseen. But he says in verse 18 that it is the unseen things that we are to look to because the unseen things are eternal, while the seen things are transient. Remember the contrast I noted just a moment ago in verse 17 between the light momentary affliction and the eternal weight of glory. Don't look to what is seen, to what is transient, that is the afflictions, but look instead to what is unseen, to what is eternal, that is the glory that is being prepared. John Piper in his book, Future Grace, I think articulates what Paul is getting at here in a, in a more concise way than I could come up with. So I'll just tell you what he said. Piper says that this means that the decaying of Paul's body was not meaningless. The pain and pressure and frustration and affliction were not happening in vain. They were not vanishing into a black hole of pointless suffering. Instead, this affliction was producing for him an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And then Piper talks about these unseen things. Piper says, The unseen thing that Paul looked at to renew his inner man was the immense weight of glory that was being prepared for him, not just after, but through and by the wasting away of his body. When he is hurting, he fixes his eyes not on how heavy the hurt is, but on how heavy the glory will be because of hurt. All right, so in light of all this, I, I, just, I just want to close with a couple more points of applications, a couple of application questions, if you will. First, when you're facing afflictions of various kinds, are you focusing on those afflictions? Or are you focusing on the eternal weight of glory that will cause you to look back one day and smile at these afflictions? You may be facing an unspeakable tragedy. You may be suffering a debilitating illness. You may be pressed down under the stress of your job. You may be pulling your hair out at your kids. Whatever the case may be, if all that we do is look at the affliction and gaze only at that, if all that we do is look at the stress, if all that we do is gaze at our suffering, then it will look and feel very heavy indeed. If you were to go to the Fort Worth Zoo and you go look, up, look at an elephant up close, you would be in awe of its enormity, of its strength, of the knowledge that it has the ability to crush you with a single footfall. But if you get up in an airplane and you fly over the Fort Worth Zoo and you look at that same elephant, it doesn't look all that imposing. It's still imposing. If you got back down there, it could still crush you. 
But if you have the different perspective, the heavenly perspective, if you will, you see it for the whole. And this is what the eternal perspective does for us. If we only gaze intently upon our sufferings and fear for how and when they will completely crush us, then they appear very weighty, like the foot of an elephant on our chest. But if we instead shift our gaze up from the horizon, if we look above to eternity, to the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, and we remember His promises to us, then we can trust that these things that do feel incredibly heavy now will be less than feathers on a scale when we at last see in all its fullness the eternal weighty glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. When we stand before King Jesus, we will then know fully what Paul is now declaring to us to be true in 2 Corinthians. These afflictions are light and momentary, not even worth comparing to the glorious reward that awaits us. Second and final question. I want to return one more time to the super apostles, the opponents of Paul, those who are seeking to build up their own power and glory, and ask you this question. Are you pursuing your own temporary glory or God's eternal glory? Maybe you've been listening to what Paul has been saying and you think, that doesn't really sound like that great of a deal. It sounds like a life full of suffering and pain and affliction and Yeah, he says it doesn't fully overwhelm you, but it'd be hard to endure something so difficult. And you're right. Living this way is difficult. In fact, it's impossible, apart from the power of God and the grace of Christ. But it's infinitely better. It's infinitely superior. I feel like I would be remiss if I preached an entire sermon on the passage that mentions the weight of glory and didn't make reference to C.S. Lewis's work by the same name. So, I make reference to it now. In C.S. Lewis's work, The Weight of Glory, the beginning of of it, he refers to us as half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You can choose the path temporal power and glory, relying upon yourself to pull through and overcome by sheer will all the afflictions that this life throws at you. And you might succeed for a while. But eventually, even your body will fail, your influence may falter and fade, your mind will slip, your friends may abandon you. And when you draw your final breath and close your eyes for the last time, then that will be the end of your glory for all of eternity. The fleeting temporal glory that you placed all of your hope in will be gone forever, and your inheritance will be condemnation and eternal affliction and suffering. But if you choose the path Paul says before us here in this passage, there will be suffering and affliction now but glory unspeakable for all of eternity. I think about the kind of songs that we sing. We sang one this morning, but, but other ones that I thought of were the, the, the line in the hymn, There is a fountain. There's a line in there that I love. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Or another one that we sing more regularly, the song, 
yet not I, but through Christ in me. The final verse of that song says, To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, that is, when you're dead, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. We sing about continuing to sing God's praises and glorify Him even after death. And if that's not infinitely better than any temporary so-called glory that this world has to offer, I don't know what is. There's simply no comparison. So don't choose the temporal glory, the mud pies in the slums. Instead, take the holiday at sea. So, to review, to conclude, don't view your afflictions as a crippling setback, but as a means to shine the light of the gospel to the world. If you believe the gospel, then speak that others might also hear and believe the gospel. And finally, look up from your light and momentary afflictions to the eternal weight of glory that is yours in Christ.